Companion Gundog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and with me today is Emily Shirey. How you doing, Emily? I'm doing well, Grayson. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I am, uh, I'm kind of on cloud nine at the moment. I just got back from a really fun hunt, uh, duck hunt in, on the Outer Banks, and uh, took Althea, and we had a wonderful time, and uh, she was the star of the show as expected. And so now we're kind of settling into home. All the dogs, uh, all the client dogs are gone. Um, and it's going to be that way through the holidays. And, uh, and so I'm looking forward to trying to get out and doing some hunting over the next few days, minus a little bit of family travel. How about you? Um, I am on vacation from client dogs right now because I am planning a trip to South Dakota and Wyoming in a couple of days. Fancy you. So I'm not going to <laughs> South Dakota or any of those cool places. Um, we'll be kicking around the woods of the Carolinas. So hopefully get east. Been hearing reports of birds um, of the migratory ilk making their way down here. Uh, so looking forward to getting after those. Feeling a little gun shy um, because I don't know. It seems to be uh, it seems to be a lot of people hunting migratory upland birds in our <laughs> neck of the woods these days. And so, uh, I don't know. I'm really happy about the R3 movement, but also uh, a little trepidatious about the amount of pressure some of these birds are seeing around here, but that's okay. I mean, plenty of p- private land for these birds, so I don't think it's going to affect their numbers. It just, I think, will certainly affect our hunting, um, uh, the more people on public land. So if you're one of those folks out there, I hope you're enjoying yourself. Stay out of my covers, please. <laughs> so today we're going to discuss puppy development. Um, it's uh, it's a topic in, uh, that is kind of going to lean back towards the the lesson style of podcasting. I have, uh, have thrown in an update since our last time, but uh, we're kind of back on track. And looking to just put out some decent information. Anything we need to address before we get started, Emily? Um, I'm a big puppy person. I really love puppies. If anyone has any questions or needs help with puppies, definitely feel free to reach out. I've had my fair share of experience. And I guess if there's one thing I would say is the most important about getting a puppy is finding the right breeder for you and finding the right litter. I don't think that is often emphasized enough, and everything is genetic, so that would be my one big tip. Well, that's uh, fortuitous, because that happened to be the very first thing on my list uh, as I made up the notes for this. So um, diving right in, uh, if you are out there and you are considering buying a new puppy, whether it be a bird dog or retriever or spaniel or, I mean, really anything else for Even that Even a matter, pet. Even a pet, it's uh, when we, the, the first step is the same across the board. It is finding a breeder, thinking of what breed you might like to get into, you know, what, what is it that you do, uh, you know, what are your objectives with the puppy? It's important to do a little soul searching before you get started. And, um, and I think you should never be in too big a hurry to get your puppy. Don't put any timelines on it. Don't don't get a puppy because it's Christmas time. 
don't get a puppy uh, because you need to do it before you travel or move or anything like that. No timelines. Select what you want. Start your breeder search. Reach out. You're welcome to reach out to me personally if you'd like to. Uh, not guaranteeing I'll get back to you, but I'll I'll. <laughs> or I uh, will. <laughs> yeah, if you make it, if you make it into the. Uh, into the uh, conveyor belt of correspondence at some point, I will do my best to give you a hand. But I, I certainly think that this is the most important step is making up your mind about what you want and then doing your due diligence uh, in regards to um, research before you jump in. So, you know, one thing I've seen a lot of lately is I, uh, I get a lot of clients recently that have versatile, I'm kind of going to change some nomenclature here for me, but versatile pointing dogs. So when I say that, I'm thinking of the Navda breeds, uh, all the German dogs, some of the other continental breeds that tend to be popular in within Navda. Um, and when they get here, uh, the folks are saying, well, I do about 90% duck hunting, but I'd really like to dabble in some point in, you know, in some bird dog work. And um, right off the bat, I can tell you, I think if that's you, if that describes you, um, I would, I would move towards a retriever of some sort. I think, uh, short hairs, wire hairs, poodle pointers, what else we got out there? All the Munsterlanders, the Picardies, the Bracco Italianos, they can all be fantastic duck dogs, um, at the end of the day, it's a compromise. You know, when we talk about engagement, which we've discussed on the, on the podcast before, just natural retrieving desire. Um, the ability to be in cold water, the ability, that's a huge one. And one that I, I is so with. overlooked. Yeah. I deal with on even our, in North Carolina Yeah, and even in labs, yes. <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, not, not all dogs are built the same. And, um, and most of your, uh, most of your pointing dogs, your even your versatile pointing dogs, they're not going to have been selected heavy on the American tradition of duck hunting side. You're just not going to see many people out there, and there are few, and they're doing it successfully. And I was out uh, the, early this week with a poodle pointer that was doing a very good job. Now he is what we call sight lout, so he was open mouth baying every crippled duck he was chasing across the marsh but it didn't really it didn't affect the hunt at all and he did a, a very good job of getting those birds we weren't in super cold water um you know and he had been through my force program and he's he's a nice dog but still uh it you know it's a compromise so can you get a top-notch duck dog out of those breedings i think you can um are you going to have a better chance of getting a top-notch duck dog out of a out of a duck dog specific type of breeding or one that at least leans more heavily that way absolutely you know and so if if that's you out there considering this you're like you're seeing stuff on the internet you're seeing a lot of see a lot of dds you see a lot of short hairs Mm -hmm. um out there doing duck dog work good on the owners i i think it especially if they're being used as versatile pointing dogs um, I think they should be out there doing that work. If if that makes up the, the heavy majority of what you're doing, I, my honest, honest opinion is you're better off with a an, and being brutally honest, a lab. Yes. I think now is a good time to mention that um, not all 
dogs within a breed are created equal. As Grayson always says, there's as much variation within a breed as between them. Meaning just because you see one short hair out there hunting ducks does not mean the other 90% of them will. So if you are someone who is dead set on hunting with a short hair, duck hunting with a short hair, you need to find someone who's breeding short hairs for duck hunting. Because chances are there are plenty of them out there that don't even like to get in water, let alone get in cold water, let alone have the desire to retrieve. Um, So no matter what your goals are, whether you want a companion or a duck dog or an upland dog or a dog that will ride in the kayak with you, you need to find a breeding that's going to... um, that's been selected for that to really have the most success and the most opportunity to do well in what you want to do. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. It's, um, you know, and, and if you, if you go out there and you buy a, a versatile pointing breed and you want it to primarily be a duck dog, I'm here. I certainly will help you get there. But my advice to you early is uh, is do to some set yourself up for success. Yeah, do some research. Think about what it really is that you want. Think about what the odds are. I mean, are you wanting to get into Upland or are you already into Upland? Because there's a, uh, I would say there is a relatively high barrier of entry when it comes to hunting wild birds, especially in areas with low densities of wild birds on public land it sounds like a lot of fun and it is a lot of fun (laughs) it's also it's also brutally hard sometimes and it's not just that it's it's it tests your patience it tests your willpower it tests your desire i go out very often and find nothing and you have to be the kind of person that's willing to do that and do it consistently to ever find a modicum of success. And then more than likely, you're going to have to be the kind of person that travels if that's what you're looking to do. Um, I love my Britneys. I breed Britneys. They're my hobby. Um, I, I would love to produce moving forward a line, uh, that's capable of competing or not competing, but testing in NAVDA, um, at the highest levels consistently, uh, I think it's a great test and I think they're fantastic little dogs for light duck work, good upland work and other, you know, companionship, yeah, companionship, especially tracking, trailing, all those things. They can do it. They're not, they're not specifically built for it. The duck work and the tracking and trailing are going to, they're going to lag in that breed. They're going to lag further than all the other German breeds. And when it comes to cold water, that's a real Achilles heel. <laughs> Um, so, so, you know, that's my early season. I'm out in October kicking around the swamps and we, we happen across a wood duck and we got 70 degree water temps on a warm day. And that dog's, you know, perfectly happy going and retrieving that duck. Um, those water temps get into low sixties and you would think they were breaking ice and (laughs) and sitting out there all day. They're shivering, miserable, (laughs) hanging their head, you know, where, where my, my, you know, lab might excel. So, um, without getting too cold, even though some days she looks like she's frigid as soon as the ducks start <laughs> flying again, she, she warms right up. And, and so just something to be aware of. I know we kind of hung on to that topic for a long time, but it, it really has been, especially in recent years, kind of been something I see a lot more of. And my suggestion is, Hey, you know, duck hunting down here is a thing. People do it. They do it successfully. Um, you can hunt upland birds very successfully with a lab. If you select your 
puppy from the right type of breeder and if you get out there and put a lot of practice and effort into it. So um, just just something to be aware of. I, I don't want to sell anybody or deter anyone. It, you sh- and I always say this, you should get what you want. So if you're willing to have a compromise of a duck dog, one that may not be uh, super full of retrieve, naturally, one that may not tolerate cold water naturally, one that may not swim super well naturally, <laughs> can't mark, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you're willing to, to take that on as a task, uh, as a project, just to have that dog beside you in the blind, then by all means, you should have that. Just be aware that's what you're getting into. People, you know, get they get on their teams they get in their own head and they convince themselves and others that this is the super breed and it's better than all the other breeds and everything. And, um, that's not the case. That's the lab. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll come around to that. I'm sure at some point you'll hear me singing, uh, the virtues of the lab, uh, which I do. I mean, I see that. And I think if every, if you're out there and you're a one, one dog person and you're looking for a family companion dog that can do most things serviceably, I really do think that's your breed. Um, if you're out there and and you've got and you're like me and you're romantic and you <laughs> follow things down the rabbit hole and you uh, romance uh, about things, you know George Bird Evans cleaning his shotgun with his setter at, on the fireplace, then get your setter, like yeah, get it, and then get, and get your lab. And get your and French Brittany. <laughs> get them all. So you um, can hang out with all your other dogs and actually take your lab hunting. Yeah, that happens That happens quite a bit. So just, you know, that's it. So we got, I mean, that's really, you know, that's our, the breed selection portion of this. You know, um, versatility uh, tends to blunt specific characteristics. So be aware of that. If you're getting something for its, for, for its versatility... Odds are you're not going to be a top tier performer in any one area, you know, and now you find short hairs that are as good as any English pointer or setter in the country, and you can find plenty of them and you can find short hairs that are better than a lot of labs at being a duck dog. And there's quite a few of those at, those are exceptions. They're exceptions, right? And they end up on either end of the, uh, of the bell curve and in, in, in that regard. But for the most part, if you're, especially if you're looking into versatile pointing breeds, they're going to line up somewhere in the middle and they're going to be, you know, pretty good at everything, not very good at anything. Um, and you know, as far as those things are concerned, and we're not even getting into like the first stuff that the Germans are into. I do see a lot of blood trailing and I'll tell you what, the best natural blood trailing dog I got is a lab. Um, and <laughs> when she doesn't cut her ear. When she doesn't cut her ear and bleed her own blood all over the blood trail you're following <laughs> before she loses it. But, you know, but I mean, you know, I think it, you know, getting to that more specifically, and this one's kind of fun. We're, we're, we're definitely digressing when you get into trailing, if that's something you're interested in. Yeah. If you're getting a birdie type of bird dog, it's pretty rare for them to want to stick that nose on the ground and really trail. They really like hot scent. They really like to test the wind by nature. And if you do a lot of that kind of work with them, you know, you really need to contextualize your training and show them what it means. You know, when it's tracking time, it's tracking time. For the most part, you know, with my lab, when it's tracking time, I walk out there and I show her 
the spore from wherever somebody killed a deer and she automatically goes, Oh, okay. And don't tell Mr. Greenpants this, but I rarely use a leash. I might hang one off of her and let her drag it around. Um, she's not big on back pressure. So we just kind of let her saunter around in front of us. If I were to do that with any of my Britneys, they're going to go head up and they're going to run a, uh, some sort of pattern through the woods looking hunting. for yeah hunting. And if they find, they come on the deer, you know, if they come across the scent cone of the deer, they'll probably run over there to it and take me to it, but they're not going to just, you know, hunch their back and stick their nose on the ground and go footstep for footstep on that deer. It's just not in their nature. Now you might find, you know, a, a, a drot or a poodle pointer or even a, a wire hair from an avid type of breeding that would be, have a little more of an inclination to act that way. Um, but I would say, you know, if, if you're, if they're really good at bird work, that's not going to be in their nature. Um, that's my opinion. There are exceptions to the rule. So I don't, I don't expect since, you know, we don't have a super huge audience for this, that there's going to be a lot of people arguing this point with me, (laughs) but if you're out there hearing it, shaking your head and you've got a dog that's great at all of it, you know, fantastic, you know, kudos and, uh, and good work. Um, I'm sure that, that they exist. I'm really speaking in generalities here. Um, um, one more thing to wrap up selecting a breeder. Um, you've got here on the notes, family home situation. I think this is really important to, to address. Grayson and I both offer companion gun dog programs. And if you are a companion gun dog owner whose dog is going to live in your house 90% of the time and go hunting 10% of the time, that 90% of the time they spend in your house is really important. And especially when we're looking at breeds like um, short hairs that have a tendency to have like incessant whining or to be hanging from your rafters or um, often do not have a natural off switch. Those are all really important things to consider. Um, You know, here we talked about how important it is to find a dog that's hunting the way you want it to, but it's also important to find a dog that lives in the house the way you want it to. So if you're looking for a companion gun dog and you go and buy field trial short hairs that live in a kennel and haven't lived inside for generations, you will definitely be calling us wondering why they never calm down, why they never are quiet, those kinds of things. So if you're looking for a puppy to live in your house, I would highly recommend finding a breeder who also has their dogs live in their house. Yeah. And I mean, so, you know, we talk about breed selection and we, we spoke in those big generalities and I'm going to narrow it back down again and say, get back to that variation within the breed thing. I, I do believe there are lines within most of the breeds we're going to refer to that are going to lend themselves to maybe higher levels of engagement, maybe a, a, just a calmer baseline. Um, I have like Wayne who I've spoken about on the podcast in, in the past. Um, Wayne, when I, when he's here and he's living in the kennel, he is a, he is a go getter. He is not a dog you would expect to come out of there and be calm. I turned Wayne over to his owner, Perry, while we were in a field trial last weekend and, um, and Wayne went with Perry straight to the hotel room, curled up on the couch and went to sleep and didn't wake up till the next morning. It was time to go. And he's like super chill. And he's, he was raised in the house and he does like, he has a switch. He's certainly contextually driven in regards to his, his kind of companion dog lifestyle. When you kick that, kennel gate open on the truck or the crate 
crate door open on the truck and you're out in the field or you turn onto a dirt road, he knows what's going down and he's in bird dog mode and he's, he, he does have a nice on off switch. I would say for his breed, he's most likely an exception to the Absolutely. Rule. I would definitely argue that. Yeah. Now Althea, my mm-hmm. lab, um, she took very long cat naps <laughs> at the, <laughs> on the catwalk to the blind. And I'm talking about like we were steady killing ducks till 11 a.m. And she would make a retrieve, come back, lay down, close her eyes for 10 minutes. <laughs> she would hear safety start to click and she'd pop up and be ready to mark birds. And that's kind of her nature. So, you know, she, she, le- she leans way on the other side, which is one reason I really like her. She has that ability to really remain out of drive until the last second. And she like comes into drive, does her job, comes back, goes right out of drive and chills out again. Um, and I would say she's an exception to the rule in that regard. I mean, she's really, she leans super heavy to that kind of chill nature. Um, and she, while remaining capable of doing the work. Mm-hmm. And I, if we could catch that lightning in a bottle, I think that that'd be something very special because I don't think you can just hang that on a specific breed or even a specific line. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she, she certainly is an outlier in that regard, but it's good to have those because it gives you something to aim for. And there's a genetic component to work with. Um, you know, so other, you know, my Brittany's, for example, I've got a couple, I've got one in the kennel that is, uh, a psycho. Um, I actually have two in the kennel that are, that could probably, you could probably hang that label on them. Then I have Pete who, when your hand touches his head, he like goes into this super affection seeking, uh, sleepy eyed love, lovey mode. But that being said, you can put him in a crate and he will mark the inside of his crate while he does circles waiting to be let out. And he's been in a crate his whole life. Um, you turn him loose in the house and he will get some zoomies. You put him on a place board, he goes straight to sleep. You let him off the place board and he will go mark your Christmas tree. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's, it, it's not always, uh, tidy, in a, in a nice little box to say this dog's perfect for this. Now his daughter, Reggie is really more of an Althea type of dog for a Brittany. She's very, very chill. Um, you know, super mellow out of drive can come into drive. She's an, she's a good hunter. She's a, a strong hunter. She's not top of the food chain type of hunting dog, but, but she's got some really nice qualities and she carries that kind of, heavy companion type of nature. So those are just the breeds I'm, I'm familiar with. You know, we could, you, I'm sure we could speak to breeders of other breeds and they could exalt the virtues of their breeds. And they could also tell you about the lines and tell you what dogs throw, what characteristics and what they're aiming for and what they're trying to capture. Um, I am a believer though, that you can capture calm nature, but you have to really, really work at it. And if you're, if you're on the fringes, in regards to performance, if you're seeking extremes in the field, then you're going to probably neglect the calm stuff. And that's okay, because if you're not seeking extremes in the field, then you're not going to have that to draw on when you need it to bring that out of the field. So I think it's important to have all of these types of dogs, um, but also to be aware that um, just because you're getting one breed or another doesn't mean you're getting uh, uh, the quintessential yeah that prototypical quintessential example of whatever it is in your mind's eye you're going to get so be careful with that so that's breed selection dipped into breeder selection but i still think we could probably hang in breeder selection for just a little longer 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> well, because here's here's why I say that. Because now when we're when we're looking for a breeder that you see, if you go on Facebook and you're doing your Facebook research, which is really hard to do because there's so many voices screaming and there's probably a lot of very logical, reasonable voices whispering. Um, and they're all telling you to find a reputable breeder. And it's really hard to find out what that means in this day and age. There are many reputable breeders that aren't marketing that are selling dogs through word of mouth and they might have a small following. There are breeders that may or may not be reputable that are marketing geniuses and are selling piles and piles of puppies. Um, and they've kind of got people believing a certain specific thing about their breeding program. What I'll tell you is, I mean, I do believe this, if somebody's breeding, I, all numbers are arbitrary because somebody could be breeding 12, 15 litters a year and really have a dialed in program. I think that would be really hard. I think you're probably looking at more to somebody, you know, on the high end, maybe four to eight litters a year, um, to really be able to manage that. And it's hard to have four or more really nice brood bitches laying around. Like I can't even, I, I, that would be so hard. I can't imagine. It also depends on your living situation. Are these house dogs or are they kennel dogs? Yeah. And how many people have six house dogs that are, I mean, I'm sure somebody out there does. How many have (laughs) six that are well-managed doing a great job of being house dogs? Yeah. And breeding all of them. And breeding all of them. And you know, it's hard, it's hard to do this. Now some, and and I'm one of these people, I have dogs placed in certain homes that I may use in my breeding program at some point. That's how I, I give puppies away to the right people in my life that I think are going to be fair to them and give them a great home. And they're going to give me an opportunity to watch them along the line. And if I think they're going to make the cut, then I may train them and test them and at some point use them in in a breeding program. But I would say more often than not, those puppies are just going to go on to live a nice life with those people and never be bred and never be tested. Um, Because I think you should have, if you're going to, if you're going to maintain high selection criteria, then you're going to have an attrition rate. If you don't have an attrition rate, then you're not being a selective breeder. You have, you know, if you're breeding everything (laughs) that's coming through your hands, that's not being selective. And, um, and that's just something to note. And so if you're out there listening to this and you're dabbling in this world, keep that in mind, you know, uh, it's, there's a word or a phrase you'll hear quite often called kennel blindness. And God knows I've been guilty of it. Uh, every time I go to a field trial, I'm reminded of like, Oh, there are much better dogs out there than some of the ones on my truck. They may not have the opportunity to get all the training because they don't live with somebody that has the time and, um, the, the resources that I do to get it done. But then I see what they've got naturally to offer and I go, Oh, I need to rethink what I got going on. So you know, be honest with yourself, be honest with those around you. Um, look for breeders that are active and involved in, doesn't necessarily have to be sport. I'm a big, I I have no problem taking a dog that's been with just a hunter and, and considering a pup out of that or considering it for breeding stock. But here's the deal with that. I've been doing it a long time. I know a lot of people. I'm not going to do that because the guy tells me it's a good hunter. I'm going to do it because I've seen it. I've put my hands on it. I felt it. 
And I think that dog has something to offer phenotypically. And I'm going to understand its genotype as well before I make that decision. So when I talk about phenotype, I'm talking about things that can be observed, you know, characteristics that individual dog displays. And when I say genotype, I'm talking about what's behind them, what's in their pedigree, what, a, you know, what are the other dogs out there that behind that dog, what have they accomplished and, and how are they, you know, who are they phenotypically? So, um, things to, to bear in mind. So when you're searching for that breeder, find somebody that's willing to let you into their world, get to know them, meet people that know them, make sure they have a good reputation. Um, you know, don't, don't jump right in. Don't, and don't be sold. Don't just automatically buy into something, expose yourself to other things too, because there are, you know, it's, I, I believe in, I believe in the, the goodness of most people. And I think some people out there don't have ill intent. I don't think they're just trying to make a lot of money and sell a lot of dogs. But I think that sometimes is what's manifest in their world because they're kennel blind and they believe they're better than everything around them and they don't expose themselves to everything around them because they feel that way. So knowing all those things, that's what's important in selecting a breeder. Um, so do your due diligence. Again, if you got questions, feel free to reach out to us, but also, you know, pay attention to what's going on. Don't just use Facebook as your research station. I don't know what else you can do, but certainly get out there. I don't care if it's three hours away. If you're not willing to drive three hours to go see a NAVDA test and look at some dogs or a field trial or visit a breeder or visit a kennel, a training kennel or whatever, then you're not putting, you're not willing to put in the kind of effort it's going to take to get what you want. And you're likely not ready for a puppy. Most likely, but that's, you know, not to pass judgment, but yeah, I'm with her on that. Um, so that's in selecting a breeder. Anything else in that regard? Um, I have a blog on my website about selecting a breeder too that we can include in the notes. Yep. So we'll make sure you got a link to that. Remember, so so for me personally, like I just made a, so I have a puppy right now. So I'm excited to talk about her as we get further into this. But in selecting, she came out of my stock. She was a stud dog fee puppy. She's a, a daughter of my Crockett dog, who's not a perfect dog. He's got some holes. Um but he, he is an outlier in other regards in ways that I think our breed, when I say our breed, I mean my breed, the EB, uh, I think in general tends to be lacking toughness and grit. And I think those are things that um, Crockett displays in, uh, in oodles and oodles. Um, so I, I wanted some of that. And he was bred to... A nice little pup that was a solo pup um, from a litter uh, with some very pointy, very elegant, very refined dogs. And so when I look at, I think it was a, I think it was a good match phenotypically because we have a very refined, good hunting dog um, and we got Crockett who is like a little gremlin in the, in the bush <laughs> and he will do anything in the world to get his nose on a bird and, uh, and he'll dig through any cover and he will, he can stand up to training pressure and things like that, which, which some of these others don't. So 
you know, we got that crapshoot in there phenotypically when you breed two kind of unlike dogs. You never know how the pups are going to, some might end up all like Crockett, some might end up like Sam, and then some might fall in the middle. And I'm hoping for the ones that, one that falls in the middle. So I got my new little bitch pup, Stevie, who is super social and super bold uh, and lovey and has all the things that I want out of her, but she's still 10 weeks old at this moment. Hadn't, hadn't had her first bird exposure. Um, hasn't had any reward based stuff, which we're going to get into later. She's essentially been played with and loved on and fed and done crate time. And that's her life right now. Super ritualistic in and out of the crate, in the crate for a couple hours, out of the crate, play like crazy, eat a little nibble, drink some water, pee pee, poop, go back in the crate, sleep for a couple hours and do it all over again, over and over and over. And right now we're getting in a really good rhythm of that. Um, and that kind of spills into the next section. And I, when I get these notes open, I'll know. So anything else? Sorry, before we leave that. No. Okay. Um, so I talked about labs. I talked about EBs. Talked about all the hunting you do. Talked about your family situation. So now I guess it's getting into bringing your new pup home. So you've done all this great work. You've selected your breed, um, which is honestly much less important than selecting the breeder. Like, I, I can't express that enough. Don't don't join team so-and-so before you get your puppy. If there's a If there's a decent short hair breeding down the road um, and you've got your heart set on a poodle pointer, but you can't see them on the ground and you're, you don't know anything about them. I honestly, and you fall in love with the two, with the mother and father and you've seen, been around those short hairs, get the short hair, you know? And I mean, this is going to, this is going to be a super unpopular opinion, but when I think of especially short hairs, dry heart, so Kurtzars, dry hars, stickle hars, you know, whatever else hars are out there, to me, they're variations of the same breed. I think you're looking at pretty much different coat types. Um, but the testing system is not only similar, but identical in many cases. There may be some slight variations. I know the draughts have, they push towards a little more fur or whatever, you know, and the, and the uh, short hairs push a little more towards the bird dog side. But for the most part, those German testing systems are selecting for the exact same criteria across the board. So even if they weren't closely genetically related, which they are, they're being selected in pretty much the exact same way. So if you shave all the hair off of a Drodhar, I think you'd be looking at a short hair. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, and, and I think the poodle pointers are pretty much the, in the same line. They're, you know, all of these breeds were were a land race at one time, and you know, and and I and I'm not knocking it. I don't want to offend anybody when I say that, but I think you're I think you're much better off if you want a German dog. Start with that as your main criteria. Find out the ones you like within it, but don't get your heart set on one until you've really had a chance to get personally involved with it. So enough with that. I've, I've just I've. <laughs> on, I've been way, way up on that soapbox for that. If you guys have questions, hopefully we covered that portion of this podcast 
thoroughly enough. There's plenty more to talk about in regards to genetic selection and breeding, and that may be fodder for another podcast down the road. Um, but you know, let's move on to getting your puppy home. So why don't you start us off, Emily? What do you think are, let's say, let's call it day one, which you're going to have pretty soon. Yes. So this is easy for me. I've I've done this a lot. And this is um, the most important thing that you can do with your new puppy is socialization, crate training, potty training. So everyone wants to start with teaching their new puppy things, but I think that is not the most important because we can do that at any point in their life. Things we cannot do at any point in their life easily are socialize them, crate train them, and potty train them. So crate training, we're going to talk about extensively, is so good for many, many reasons. For one, it's going to help with potty training. If you're letting your puppy run loose in your house all the time, they are absolutely going to have accidents. Most puppies do not want to have accidents in their crate if their crate's an appropriate size, which means it should be barely big enough for them to stand up in, turn around in. If they've got room to go pee in one corner and then go lay in the other, they will continue to pee in one corner if they don't have to lay in it. But if it's small enough that they can't stay out of it, most puppies will not want to potty in their crate, and that makes potty training very easily easy. You take them outside, they go potty, you bring them back in, they can have some free time in the house. If they don't potty when they're outside, you put them back in the crate. Hopefully they won't potty in there and you can take them back out again. Some dogs are genetically dirtier than others. And I don't feel like that's emphasized enough, but it's very, very obvious and very true that you can get dogs that are genetically dirty. And no matter how hard you worked to keep them clean in their crate, they will continue to pee and poop in their crate. So that's another um, thing to look out for when you're selecting a puppy. Crate training is also really good for teaching how to deal with frustrations, building self-soothing techniques. Um, There's just so many benefits to it. Even if you don't plan to crate train your puppy long-term, I think it's extremely important that you start it as a puppy. All puppies are going to freak out in the crate when they're in it for the first time. That is not a reason to not crate your, train your puppy. That is a whole. That is the exact reason why you should, so that they learn to deal with that frustration. They learn how to self soothe. They learn that they can be on their own. They learn how to um, chill out. That they don't have to always be entertained. Especially important for high energy bird dogs. And they get over it. It might take a couple weeks, but they do get over it. They all get over it. And that always gives you the option to bring them back in the crate later on in their life for things like traveling. There's no safer way to travel with your dog than in a crate. If the dog is stressed in a crate, your travel will be stressful. Um, If they get injured, the majority of times, um, if you have an injury, you're going to be on crate rest. If you have a three or four year old dog that's never been in a crate and they're used to living an active lifestyle and suddenly they have to be in a crate for six to eight weeks post TPLO surgery, you're going to have a really hard time and you are definitely going to have to use drugs to keep them calm. So crate training is so important. It's helpful with potty training, which is obviously if your dog's living inside is going to be a huge importance. Um, Socialization is the other big, big one to think about when 
you bring a puppy home and it's not just socialization with people, which is what we tend to think. Um, in general, critical socialization period for most puppies ends around 16 weeks, which means if you want your puppy to be calm and confident and um, happy with certain things, you should introduce it in a positive manner by 16 weeks. So it doesn't mean just ex- giving your puppy a bath and or trimming their nails and they fight you the whole time and it's a terrible experience and that's proper socialization. But proper socialization is having good experiences with all sorts of things. So that can be textures, so carpet, asphalt, uh, tile, linoleum, all sorts of different textures. Um, it can be sounds, so listening to other dogs bark, listening to children, listening to the vacuum or the washing machine, It can be experiences like getting baths, getting their nails trimmed, going to the groomer. If you have a dog that needs to be groomed, they should absolutely be going to the groomer as a puppy, even if they don't need groomed to have positive experiences. Um, And then, of course, with people and dogs and all sorts of different animals and environments. But again, it has to be a positive experience. So taking your puppy to the dog park where it gets beat up on by a bunch of inappropriate dogs is not great socialization. But taking your puppy to your dog trainer's house where they have lots of appropriate, well-behaved dogs that will be um, social and set good examples of proper socialization, that's going to be really important. Yeah. I tend to agree with all of those. Um, I I think the best way for me to... To kind of reinforce everything you said there, which I, which I a hundred percent agree with is just to talk about my new puppy <laughs> and, and how it went. Not that I'm busting at the seams to do that, which I am, um, you know, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there. Like you're going to be able to look up like everything from exactly what foods you should feed to a perfect crate schedule to, um, you know, whatever there are, you internet resources forever that will give you a minute by minute breakdown of your puppy's life and what it should look like. And I don't roll that way at all. I I usually start out with a lot of grand ideas about how I'm going to raise my puppy. <laughs> and then everything kind of just goes down to managing the lifestyle because I have a busy life. I've got a job. I have a run a business. I've got uh, a young child. It's Christmas time. There's a lot going on in our house. And I got this new puppy. Uh, I was just gone for four or five days and had to leave the puppy to my wife uh, and toddler um, while I was away. And, you know, her existence got a little more simple while they, while I was away for that. And those happen, those moments happen. It's, um, you know, it's life. And I think one thing that's important is to kind of have, try to be somewhat on the same page with anyone else in the household. Um, but also recognizing that you're not going to necessarily agree with that person on everything. That person may not have the ability to manipulate their schedule the way you do. Don't get frustrated with each other. Kind of come up with what are the super important things? You know, so for me, it's, I, I do like the fact that Stevie has the opportunity to come in in the evenings and interact with Luke Uh, and in a supervised way. So Luke has to learn boundaries. This is a good opportunity for him. We've got big dogs around that have been a kind of a part of his life, his whole life. He's seen other puppies, but for whatever reason, he 
is uh, Gaga over Stevie. So he's obsessed and to the point of being inappropriate to the point of like, he'll chase her around and try to grab her. And so I, we have to be vigilant when she's on the ground with him. Number one, no physical harm. And he will, he would unintended. He would, he could hurt her, you know, so he'll grab her. Um, but then also emotional stress, right? That's a lot. And so if I see her, if he's engaging her and wanting to play the moment I recognize she is done with that, she's stressed out, then I need to make sure that engagement changes that that something changes in that. And so, uh, you know, if that means I have to put him in timeout for being overly, uh, aggressive in his play with her, then that's what happens. But usually it just means separating him. And he knows that if he crosses the boundary, then she goes away. You know, the biggest, the biggest reinforcer for his behavior is the opportunity to engage with her. He loves it. And so the moment it becomes inappropriate, she goes back downstairs. She spends some time in a kennel I have set up in the garage and some time in a crate, depending on what's going on. So I do want her and I don't, she doesn't necessarily need the freedom of movement, but, um, I want her when she goes in that crate, I want her to be tired and I want her to have pottied. So I use that. There's a ritualistic kind of uh, uh, importance to the crate. And if it's if there's a gray area, oftentimes I'll throw her in the kennel. She's got free access to water in the kennel. She's got space. I, I don't want her to make a mess in there. But if she's going to, that's a place it can happen and I can clean it easily. Um, my In a perfect world, it would just be come out, engage me, socialize with the world, um, be exposed to all environments that I have available to me and then get really tired, um, and then go in the crate and then maybe come out of the crate, uh, go potty, play around a little bit, be fed in the crate, spend a few minutes in there while you're eating, come back out, poop, engage and play, and then go back in the crate when you're tired again. So if that perfect world, it would always be out of the crate. Something's going on in the crate, feeding in the crate, coming out, pottying back in the crate, doing all these things and always having some sort of ritual around the crate. That's a tough, tough, tough deal. And so what I do is I, I have that kind of intermediary, intermediary, which is that kennel space, which is about four by four. It's basically an X pin for her. And what it does for me is it allows me to isolate her, um, control the environment, but also not put her in the crate. I, I would rather her go in there and freak out than go into the crate and freak out. Um, not, and that's just me. I don't know that that makes it any better, but what's happening now at this point in her life is she's freaking out less and less. She's been with us for about a week and a half. And when she goes in the crate, she may give it a little wine, but most for the most part now, if she goes in tired and ready for a rest, she goes in right to sleep. And, uh, and if she squeaks at all, um, she doesn't necessarily get herself out of there, you know? And so also I have an outbuilding and if she chooses to go absolutely crazy, then that crate can go into that outbuilding. It's climate controlled. She's safe in there and it keeps, uh, it keeps her from disturbing the peace. And when she's calmed down, we go back out there and we get her. So that's brutal honesty, you know, that's, but that's the way it works around my house. And for the most part, the, that crate routine, that isolation routine and, um, and that exposure 
is going well. Um, maybe something we could touch on would be food. Uh, I'm feeding Victor High Pro Plus to my puppy. Um, could probably come up with a better recipe, but it's an all ages food and that's what she eats. So you're going to hear it in real time. What Emily's thoughts are on what I'm feeding my puppy. Um, Victor High Pro is safe for all life stages for puppies that are um, going to be under 70 pounds as an adult. If you have a large, large breed puppy, you should not be feeding Victor um, High Pro to them. But I think it's a super, super food. It's what I feed um, my dogs that eat kibble. So like Flair eats Victor High Pro right now. She will not be over 70 pounds as an adult. And um, it's what I feed all my client dogs. So it's fine to feed to adult dogs that are over 70 pounds. Um, it is definitely my top food choice. My other top food choice is Nature's Logic. It is too high calcium for puppies, so you can't feed it to puppies. So I feed all my puppies Hyper Plus. Cool. So that, there you go. So if you were if you were listening to this podcast specifically for food, then you have it. So what do you, any thoughts on puppy food specific to puppies? Like as in what to feed? I don't know. I mean, is, you know, that, I think, do you feel like that's more of a marketing ploy or do you feel like there's oh, you benefits mean, to puppy feed? specifically food? Yeah. Like it to benefits to feeding puppy kibble as opposed to an all. No, okay. I don't. And a lot of times, especially with like larger breeds, if you obviously, if you feed them too high of, um, nutrients they can grow too quickly and then you have issues. So in my opinion, you're always safer feeding a, all life stages puppy food. Gotcha. And, okay. and, and part of that reason is I have done so much research and I do not find any puppy food to be as high quality as something I would feed. That's, that's good information. And I mean, honestly, I, that was a real question for me in real time. So, you know, it's something I've wondered, am I missing something by not feeding a puppy kibble? Um, I, you know, in, intuition has told me I'm not the little bit of research I've done has told me I'm not, but hearing it from Emily, knowing that she's poured a lot of time and energy into that makes me feel better. It's not everything. There's always do your independent research as always. Don't take our word for it. We don't get paid by Victor. <laughs> they don't give me any free food. I wish they did. Yeah. Shout uh, out to Victor if yeah. you want to, but they, you know, it's a good quality product comes in at a decent price point. I think you can find comparable things out there. I don't think I have found anything at a better price point that I think is as high a quality. I agree. Um, and so that's that's why it's my choice, and it's an independent choice. I have never never been solicited by them for anything. So um, so that out of the way, kind of getting back, to, you know, one thing I always tell clients, and I've said it on the podcast before, whether you, whether it's a new puppy, whether it's a rescue dog, whether it's an adult that you've messed you you didn't raise the way you intended to, but you're now at a place where you're turning over a new leaf. The most important thing, spend time with your dog. You know, so when we talk about socialization and we talk about environmental exposure, I mean, it comes down to this. It's, you know, I can always tell when a client drops a dog with me that has, that spent time with them, has been exposed to the world at large, has been well socialized, but it always comes down to the same thing. So if you're going somewhere, if you're going to Lowe's, if you're going to the office and you can do it, throw the pup in the crate, in the truck with you, take it out and go manage it there. And ritual and routine being so important, it's it's hard at first. It takes a few weeks for you to develop the habits. And so it gets back to that same 
when I send my companion gun dogs home. I don't send you home with a list of commands. I'm not doing a super complex involved turnover. What I want is you to give me 30 days of crate when not supervised, place board once the dog understands that, when semi-supervised, and loose on the ground only when you're willing to engage 100% of the time with the dog. Doesn't mean you have to be training, just means you have to be paying attention and means you have to be engaging with the dog with intent. And treat your puppy that same way and you're going to get out what you put in. And if you get past that threshold, that two weeks, that 30 days where you've developed the habit, it's no longer hard, it's natural. And that's what's important. So it's going to be, there'll be growing when you have your new puppy, it's going to be a burden to do that for a, for a short amount of time. And then it's going to become routine and it'll be less of a burden, but you got to put in the time that's uncomfortable to get to the time that's comfortable and to get that dog in your mind's eye that you want, that's comfortable in all environments and to the point where you're going to the duck blind and everybody's engaging with your dog and they like it and they're scratching her ear and they're happy that she's there as opposed to taking that thing that you picked up at the trainer that you've only seen, you know, for a month out of the year when you go to pick it up. If with your trainer, that dog may be a completely different animal. If you're not spending the time just putting the effort into your dog, you're not going to reap the benefits. And so that starts the day you pick that puppy up from the breeder. And as important as that is, that is extremely important. You have to put in the time. There's also a significant importance to giving the puppy plenty of time to be in their crate. And so just like what Grayson said, when his puppy is not doing anything, she's in the crate. When she comes out, he is working with her with intent. So many people get puppies and they just kind of exist together. And that creates a lot of unhealthy habits that start with um, having potty accidents in the house. It starts with puppies that have separation anxiety, which is can certainly be genetic, but is usually man-made. Um, puppies that have no ability to hang out or chill because they're always just kind of running around getting into things on their own. Puppies that do not like to be confined. Um, and puppies that don't really know how to exist um, <laughs> on their own. So as important as it is to get out, get your puppy out and do things with them, it's also equally important that your puppy learns that they will not be entertained by you 24 seven. And there will be time, um, whether you're sick or overnight or on vacation that they will have to just hang out on their own and be able to be chill with that. Yeah. And they've got, yeah. I mean, being bored is not species specific <laughs> in terms of a skill. Like it's something we've forgotten to do. And with our, all of our gadgets and all of the things that trap our attention. And one thing Mm -hmm. that you do a lot of that I need to do more of is, is read. That's something, (laughs) that's something that we learned, uh, uh, somewhere through our evolutionary history, uh, (laughs) to keep our, to keep our minds occupied. But, um, you know, dogs aren't staring at phones. They got to learn to be in that crate and learn to be bored. Mm -hmm. And that's an important, it is an important skill. Um, you know, briefly, so just a quick rundown of what we've discussed in terms of puppy stuff. When you got them out, when they're loose, you need to be paying attention. When we talk about engaging with intent, it doesn't mean we're training constantly. Stevie has taken probably a total of less than 10 pieces of kibble from my hand. (laughs) That's my fault. She could, I could be doing more. Um, 
that's, and that's the first skill she needs to learn is just to, to be hand fed. What does happen though, is when that crate door opens, she's always let outside to potty. She does it immediately now. Mm-hmm. As soon as she comes out of the crate, the first thing she does is goes straight to the grass and potties on it. Mm-hmm. Um, when she eats, she eats in the crate for me. That doesn't, and I don't think that's necessary all the time, but I think there should be structure around feeding time. So for me, structure means, hey, I'm going to show up at your door with a little dish of kibble. You jump in the crate. I put it down for you. I close the door. When the when that kibble's gone and when it's clean, that door opens again and you go right outside to potty. Most times that's going to stimulate a bowel movement. And, um, and that's what I'm looking for every time she's done eating. Doesn't necessarily mean she has to come right back into the crate. Usually at that time, I try to plan that around a time where it's going to be a nice engaging playtime after, after that happens. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not training a lot. I do want to talk about how we can start training our puppies early what yeah, I know you you tend to do a lot more of that than I do. Um, we at one point in time had a uh, what was my plan to do like a compulsion only puppy raising? <laughs> that was Jonah, right? Yeah, puppy raising. Who turned out to be so great? Yeah, I did. I actually I never did any reward based training with Jonah whatsoever, and he turned into a fantastic dog. He could have been fantastic as a reward based trained dog, I, but I it worked out fine, and so. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do that. I do think you should. Um, I am. I just tend to. Not I, everyone likes puppies as much as I do. Yeah. I'm, number one. Yeah. Like puppies aren't. I'm not against. I love puppies. I love snuggling them. I love playing with them. <laughs> I just. I train dogs all day. And, and, and I have a busy family life. And my hobby is still dog training and hunting. It doesn't carry over into marker systems the way it used to. I will play at it. What I tend to do is like get really hot on it for like a week (laughs) and then just like fall off for for months (laughs) months at a time. That's Grayson in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) So like, so, but I, but that, that being said, you know, I, I have no problem going out for a walk with the puppy and making sure they get all over the farm. They're jumping on creeks. They're seeing rocks. They're seeing roots. They're chasing squirrels. They're doing whatever it is they need to do to, to become um, comfortable in any and all environments. They're riding in the truck uh, across the farm. They're getting in the kennel. They're getting in the dog box. They're getting in the crate. They're doing all the things that all the dogs will do in a normal day. And then for me, it really gets fun when it's bird exposure time and uh and then we do a lot more of that and then just walk and hunt and play and when they are ready for some compulsion and training then we start that and that we're going to do a separate podcast at some point but i think it's important to to touch on it at this point that we now have the option and the ability to begin to help our puppies develop resilience um and it starts with things like the crate. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it, it yeah, may tug at your heartstrings to hear them whine in there, but it's also going to make them a um in my opinion a more resilient animal if they learn to manage their emotions and learn that not everything's the end of the world. You know, and when they get hurt and they get a little limp, let them walk it off a little bit. Sometimes <laughs> if you need to pay attention to it, pay attention to it, you know, but they're puppies, everything's going to be the end of the world the first time. And, uh, and be aware of that, you know, for the most part, nature knows what it's doing and you got a pretty durable, resilient animal, but you have to allow that to be manifest. 
Anything to add to that? Um, add to resilience? Yeah, I mean, I guess. Um, I mean, without doing a whole different podcast. I think, yeah, we're going to do a whole podcast on resilience because sure. I think it's so important. But just the idea that, you know, if we coddle our puppies too much, I mean, they certainly need coddled and they certainly need cuddled and, you know, taken care of. But if we coddle them too much, it does not do us any favors in the long run. And, you know, I'm speaking very personally about that. I absolutely coddled Blitz and now Blitz and I are in this vicious circle of I can't stop coddling her and she has to be coddled in various aspects. And, you know, we've got this big hunting trip planned and I'm so stressed about it because she's going to be stressed about it. And I'm taking Ember and I haven't once worried about her because she's resilient. And it's I'm really um, five years later, Blitz is five now regretting coddling her so much but here we are so um as someone with practical experience coddling a puppies does not do you any favors long run in the long term yeah and to run the risk of catching a dirty look from across the table <laughs> i would say that it's never too late to physically maybe not emotionally <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's never too late you know it, it, i believe in personal change And I was lucky that in my formative years, I experienced enough adversity to at least help me to get to the place I am today. I'm not certainly others have experienced way more and they're much more resilient than I am today, but I feel like I'm pretty well adjusted. And it's because, um, it's because I was really dumb when I was young. (laughs) Right. And, and so, but I, but I've known people in their forties that they kind of cruised through life and then had a bad experience and were better for it. Um, at some point. So, you know, I, uh, for for whatever that means in in the context of your life and everybody listening you know that's don't don't be afraid of adversity for you or your dog you know experience it expose yourselves and your dogs to it and do it in a measured way and get tougher um, and that that doesn't mean punishment i feel like a lot of people might assume that means you sure. know whooping their butt for doing yeah. something wrong it does not have to mean that what it does mean is let's say you put a leash on your dog and your dog freaks out and so you take off the leash mm-hmm. that will not build resilience you are not doing your dog any favors by not teaching them that they will live that they can get out of that by being calm and relaxed and just going with the flow So that's how we build resilience in those situations. It doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, being mean. Yeah. Have it, just have a good baseline. Like, um, yeah. And if your dog's freaking out, if your dog's uncomfortable, prolonged exposure will make it more comfortable. It'll get over it. That's a big part of what happens here at my place when dogs come in. And the majority of trainers. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, we put your dog on a routine. Um, and people are amazed when they come here in week two and three and like, I go out and I run their dog and then all of a sudden I go back to the kennel and their dog just saunters along with me and goes right in the kennel. And they're like, I've never seen them do anything like that. And it's like, well, it's just cause we do it five times a day, every day of the dog's life, you know, it's here and it becomes ritual. It becomes routine. It becomes okay. And, um, it, the same will happen for you if you choose to take the lead in that regard. It's, you know, I'm looking at the clock. We're already an hour in. Okay. Um, and I think we've covered a lot of important things and I think it had this to this point has had what I was hoping it would have, but I do think it would probably be better to revisit this in a second episode mm-hmm. to, because what I have at the end of the notes, um, I really you gets, can, you want to try it and knock it out? Well, I think you can kind of cut it. Um, the first year field okay. could be a separate podcast and sure. everything above that we've touched on, um, 
carry the puppy. The only, and- I guess, going back through a couple notes, um, bringing home your new puppy, setting boundaries for the pup and people. You talked about that with Luke, and I just wanted to mention exactly how Grayson sets boundaries with his kid is exactly how you should set them with other dogs. Yep. When things get, um, you know uncomfortable for you for anyone in the situation separate them that's yep. a, a separate and isolate yep um we talked about the use of the crate why isolation is important schedule um the only thing we really didn't touch on much is reward-based games and engagement but we maybe we throw that in the first year of field too okay um not that I just want to cap this at an hour. I mm-hmm. just feel like I could go on for another hour easily, and, especially yeah. when we get into the more technical yeah. stuff. And and something I've considered, and maybe we, we should do, is maybe split this into bird dogs and have a retriever segment as well, and maybe break this into life stages. So mm. maybe the first year of field, yeah. the, that's the, and then intermediate, helpful. and then advanced work. So I think people come here for that. We've done overviews of everything, mm-hmm. and I think now this is an opportunity for us to break it all down. Okay. Um, and go through life stages and go through training stages. Uh, so, so look forward to that. We may throw a resilience episode in there mm-hmm. somewhere in in between. But I think moving forward, um, let's go first year of field pointing dogs, first year of field retrievers, first year inter- at home pets. Yep, first year at home pets we can do. And I mean, I think those will probably. Uh, I mean, honestly, I feel like if you just did all the stuff we talked about for the first year, you'd pretty much be fine outside of a little bit of technical work. Um, some, there'll be some overlap, but, but yeah, you know, I think maybe we mix the companion aspect into both of those Mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then we'll visit some intermediate stuff, maybe what it looks like to get to a good hunting dog phase. And if you want to live there forever, then that's fine. But if you want to challenge UT or a master mm-hmm. or run field trials or mm-hmm. just have a super high class pointing dog or retriever, what that means. Um, so so look forward to that probably on our next podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I am looking to fill summer programs now. I'm booked for March. So anybody out there that is thinking of a fall of 23 or probably a spring of 24 UT and would be interested in, uh, in having their dog with me, um, retrieve and water work all happens in the summertime. Yes. Summer is not bird introduction yep. for Grayson. Sum- so summer is going to be getting your duck search ready. And that could be a good flow for some folks to come through that. Get the get a good force program in, get their good duck search built, and then move right into September for bird work because we've got some spaces available for September. Um, so if that is something you're considering, reach out to me or Emily, and she'll get you locked in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, she has, I know, something coming up. What, what do you have available? I have obe- pet obedience available for February. And, um, along with this podcast, if you're getting a new puppy, I'd be happy to help with that. And, um, I cover a ton of puppy stuff on my Patreon. If you're interested, um, it's $15 a month to see the majority of the actual training and how to stuff I do with puppies, but I've got a new puppy coming home at the beginning of the year. So there will be lots and lots of puppy videos on there. If anyone wants some extra help. Yeah, that's, that's a, a very solid resource. So, so check that out. I do not want your puppy. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> so send your puppy to Emily. We'll get it. Uh, we'll get it started on birds and stuff together. And then at some point, if you want to send your bigger dog to me, um, then I'd be happy to take that on. But I cannot reiterate enough <laughs> <laughs> that I don't want your puppy. So um, 
But I do want you to spend lots and lots of time with your puppy. I do want you to send your dog, your puppy to, to Emily or someone that is similar, uh, that, that really enjoys that phase of life and, and working with them. And I think it's super important. If you don't have the time for it, then you need to be reaching out to somebody like her. Or buy a started dog. Or buy a started dog, which I, you know, I could probably help you with. I, I don't have any currently. Um, but if you are in the search for something like that, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to help if I can. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what, anything else we have coming up that needs discussed? Nope. I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. It's hunting season. Yep. So we got to go hunt. Yes. So we do. I do have some, maybe contact me. I'm going to take, I'm going to probably wipe the calendar so that it's not available anymore. But if you're interested in a training hunt, whether it be on wild birds or pin raised birds, um, in the month of January or February, uh, go ahead and contact me. I can get you lined up with that. Um, pricing on the wild bird is 400 and that'll end up being probably a half day of field with some lesson type work on either end of that. Um, wild bird would probably be about the same and I could probably knock that out for what's, I mean, pin raised bird, sorry, be about the same. Uh, I'd do five birds and, uh, to start, Everything else a la carte at whatever the market rate is, and I'd start that pricing at two twenty five. So if you're interested in that, give me a shout and we'll spend that time afield. And what I really want to cover is, you know, if it's wild birds, I want to it's basically gonna be a lesson on how to prospect for cover and get your dog into birds. If it's gonna be pin raised birds, it's gonna be here's how we can hunt in such a manner that reinforces the behaviors we want to see and diminishes the behaviors we don't want to see. So you can have fun, hunt your dog and set yourself up for success, or you can uh, go out there and have a big sloppy mess. And so (laughs) if you don't know how to have the success, give me a shout. I can, uh, I can give you a hand with that. So until next time, uh, we'll see you. Have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.